0: I'm Rob Skinner, and this is the Rob Skinner Podcast. In this episode, I interview Kevin and Melissa Miller, who lead the Boston Church of Christ. They've been leading this fabled church for a little over a year. And in this episode, they talk about how they became Christians, how they have built a culture of spiritual ambition, how they maintain high standards for both relationships and performance on their staff, what it was like learning from and losing Melissa's father, Wyndham Shaw. How did they develop so many high-volume preachers in Boston? Kevin shares three steps to reigniting your campus ministry. And finally, how they've managed to attract powerful talent to their church staff. All this and more on the Rob Skinner Podcast. Welcome back to the Rob Skinner podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no regrets life, make this life count, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Kevin and Melissa, welcome to the
1: program. It's great to be here. Thank you for asking us to be here.
2: Yes, thank you.
0: How'd you guys become Christians?
2: I feel like I am a fourth, fifth, or sixth generation kingdom kid. Um, <laughs> my, I don't even know how far back my great great grandparents, I think, were from Mainline Church of Christ, and so my mom became a Christian when she was 13, and my parents met in campus ministry in Florida, and we moved to Boston when I was almost 10, and I think watching their lives coming from such a legacy of faith that led me early on to feel like, how could I not want to do this? So, I became a Christian, um, shortly before i turned 13 as a young teen and have not looked back since
1: yes the generation for her the the legacy continues for her grandfather my my oldest daughter is about to baptize a friend i think uh in her dorm wow my son just led his first bible talk this week in high school he was the only christian there and and my youngest is probably this month or next month gonna be uh going to be making the decision for Jesus to be Lord so it's amazing Uh, I feel very blessed you know for me um, I became a Christian when I was 20 years old in 1995 and I came from come from an Irish Italian sort of loud drinking wild sort of family and uh, at, at about 19 years old 20 years old started really feeling unhappy with my life and where things were and you know, there wasn't much of a, I don't think it was ever a, an Easter Christmas wedding funeral that I went to that wasn't filled with drunkenness and wildness. And I have, you know, my mother has nine bro- brothers and sisters. Uh, she's in the McLaughlins. So I'm Irish and Italian. And, um, you know, everybody's, there's coaches and business leaders and everybody talks, you know, about an inch away from each other's faces. <laughs> and uh, the first time Melissa came to dinner with us, uh, she said, why? why is your family yelling at each other the whole time? And and, uh, I said, who's yelling, but uh, it's just a loud, but, but at about 19, I started to really wonder what was going on in life. And I wasn't happy. And my brother, who's three years older than me, was the same. And uh, we were kind of seeking God, seeking truth, seeking answers together. And um, you know, one day he came through the, he, he got reached out to by this incredibly introverted disciple in the Springfield area, Western Massachusetts. And um, this guy shared his faith with them. And three months later, my brother came walking through the door and, and said, you know, I'm getting baptized. I went to the baptism um, and it was like nothing I had ever seen in terms of, you know, old and young, uh, rich and poor, white and black and everything in between. You could tell in this basement on a Tuesday night. And, um, you know, I started studying about a week later and you know, I think I started studying the Bible on a Tuesday night and the following Tuesday night, I was baptized. and you know, since then my mother and father have been baptized. My sister was baptized. I mean, the amount of children, my brother's children, my children, friends that have been baptized. You
2: have the McLaughlin auntie.
1: Yeah, a lot number of my aunts have become Christians and um, it's amazing what this one decision from this, this quiet, introverted disciple in the Springfield area, the amount of lives that have been impacted by this one guy. It truly blows my mind.
0: So that person reached out to your brother.
1: Yeah. His name was, his name was Eric Kleinschmidt. Eric Kleinschmidt reached out to my brother. And then the guy that studied the Bible with us was named John Fenstermacher. So John Fenstermacher (laughs) and Eric Kleinschmidt. I thought that I was joining a German church, but uh, it it didn't turn out to be that way.
0: Okay. So you were 20 when you got baptized in 95, so you're what, 46?
1: Good. You're good.
0: Okay, great. All right.
1: Yeah, 46.
0: Now, how did you guys get together?
2: We uh, met in the City of Love in Paris, and it was actually a great a great meeting. Um, Mike Lamb and Bethany Jones, who I had grown up in the team ministry with, actually set us up on a date and... Um, I was actually about to start dating another guy who before we had left to go to this campus leadership conference in Paris was telling me about this friendship with a guy named Kevin who he was looking forward to me meeting and I was like oh great whatever and uh, in the meantime these other two disciples Mike and Bethany um, had simultaneously told both of us about each other and that we should meet and so we met and had a conversation that led into a first date, and I think I was smitten pretty much right away. He had to be convinced, but it didn't take long.
1: No, the uh, the the uh, Mike and Bethany said there's this girl, and her daughter is Wyndham Shaw. So nobody, daughter. what did I say? Daughter. Yeah, the daughter. Uh, the daughter. Wy- Wyndham Shaw's daughter. So that's they, and uh, you know he's an elder. He was an elder. He's passed away, but he. He was a, definitely a major pillar in the Boston church. And I knew exactly who he was. I had only been a Christian for a year or two. And someone said, she never gets to go on dates because everybody's intimidated. And I thought, <laughs> not me. And so I actually asked this friend who sort of liked her. This was back in the day when there was a period in the church where you didn't start dating. You started dating every other week. That was right. like the right. thing that was, and he was kind of in that mode with her. But I asked him, hey, do you mind? And he said no. And we went to the Louvre for our first date, saw the Mona Lisa and, um,
2: got me a stick of gum for got, dinner. That's
1: right. And then, um, and then that kind of ended and, um, that date came to an end. She went off on a youth core. I went back to, to to Massachusetts. And, um, and I kind of was like, ah, I don't think I'm going to pursue this because I don't want to mess this guy up. We we're kind of friends and, um, and I was kind of wrestling through it. And I remember I was talking, I had two roommates and, uh, I asked him, what do I do with this situation? You know, I kind of, I don't know that I like her yet, but it was definitely a great date. And one of them, Chris Zillman was, was one of the guys who was my roommate. He leads the church in Denver. And he said, no, I wouldn't do it. Don't, don't ask her on another date. And then my other roommate said, Oh, I would definitely do it. Trust God. He's in control. <laughs> and as we were having that conversation, my brother's girlfriend who is Christy lamb was Christy lamb, Christy lamb, is Roger's daughter and Michael's sister, who was dating my brother at the time. And she has since gone on to be with Jesus. So the
2: Lamb siblings, we were yeah. very
1: grateful for them. They, we, we are. And, and she called as we were having this conversation because Melissa's mother had sort of called her to talk about some hope thing and dropped. Melissa's not actually interested in this other guy. And so I took that as a sign from Almighty God, called her the next day and I, I, probably two dates in, I knew I wanted to marry this girl. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Wow. I mean, you guys can come from really two more different backgrounds. You're I'm assuming a Catholic background. Yeah. And right. then your mainline church, ICOC. I mean, there's quite a, quite a difference. What is it about you that attracts you to each other?
2: I mean, I think we are entirely opposite and equally stubborn um so i think you know i was very attracted to his charisma his faith his leadership um but i think we both had very similar dreams and passions and you know i don't think anyone could have uh, married kevin and been able to handle all of his wonderfulness um, <laughs> But I think uh, our, we complement each other in right. in many ways. I think I we, bring a lot of the family; he brings a lot of the army, and we've learned to meld that together. Yeah, with each other in great ways.
1: Yeah, it's funny to think about what attracted me, you know, when we first met, and she was obviously uh, beautiful, and
2: and he was quite the romantic, still is.
1: Yeah, well, it's that Italian blood, you know. We're we're <laughs> we we've got a lot of problems, but we do we do have romance in our blood, but. You know, from, I, I totally remember Melissa was, was so encouraging. She built me up so much. And it's funny through the years, you, uh, I was always pretty courageous and, you know, kind of a, a life in the room, but very insecure. And, uh, as a young man, and she was such a, and, and kind of a, a guilt-ridden person too. I mean, coming from my background and all the sin and all the, you know, the idea of God's grace and a relationship with God, that's kind of over 27 years become so clear and connected, you know, in those early years, you're, and she was such this bright light of, of, of grace and forgiveness and joy. And she would build me up. And I remember just feeling like, wow, you know, I love being around this person. She, Mm -hmm. she, she's, she's, she's so encouraging. And then I also remember she's the sweetest little cute thing, but man, she was getting fired from her dorm for sharing her faith as a, RA. I mean, she was a radical kingdom first person. And when I, when I saw that, I thought this is, she didn't, there were no other causes that she really was sort of into, you know, it was, and and as a young man, I was like, I didn't know a lot of people quite, quite like that. And it really stood out to me. And I, I, you know, I, I, I pursued her.
0: Okay. That that's a good lead in one, one thing that interests me for you, Melissa, is you come from this long, long religious line, lineage, and and yet you've got a lot of spiritual ambition, you want to go in the ministry. Where does that come from? I mean, I, you know, the, the image of a person who's grown up in church is one who just takes it for granted, you know, not necessarily a positive image, someone who's, you know, just kind of comes, but checks in, doesn't necessarily have a lot of spiritual ambition. Where did you get that? I mean, you could have just coasted on the legacy of your parents. Where'd you get your own spiritual ambition?
2: You know, um, it's a great question, and it's easy for me to answer. And it, you know, though you say it didn't, you know, it doesn't come from my parents, but I think growing up watching them, they were the two most authentic and transparent Christians that I knew and they lived out their faith in such, um, such an amazing way. My dad's favorite scripture has always been 1 Timothy 1.5, just about having a, a clear conscience, a sincere faith, and a pure heart. And that is how they both lived. And I saw the way that they loved people and the impact that they had on people. Even as I saw things happen inside the church and how they handled conflicts and hurts. And I I just saw through and through their genuine faith. And I think it made such an impact on how could I want to do anything else? I mean, certainly as a kid, and, you know, we moved around a lot and they led in different churches, but I, people laugh when I tell them, you know, I played dolls and with my dolls and we'd had staff meetings and (laughs) baptisms and, and, uh, you know, holy marriages. And it was a really, it just was certainly in me, but I think I had such a relationship with my parents too, where they were transparent with me. I saw their flaws. I saw their imperfections, but their quickness to want to grow, change their humility. Um, And it just really brought the Bible to life to me that the fruit of it you know the the Bible was was true mm-hmm. that when you lived it out, the fruit of it proved itself, and so I think it was just very. It made it very genuine to me. Wow, it was great.
0: Mm. That's awesome. What led you guys into the ministry?
1: Um, Well, um, I went in. I gra- I I graduated before she did, and so I went into the ministry um, first. She was. She was going to University of Connecticut and I was going to UMass Amherst. So that was, that was like an hour away from each other. So, um, you know, for me, I, before I was a Christian, I was kind of a clown drunk keg party guy for a while, but about a year and a half before I became a Christian, I really started to search. I, I did, wasn't really happy with where I was. And I started to kind of figure out, I would go to civil rights rallies and um malcolm x was like uh my hero before i was a christian and i was a history major and uh this 1960s that whole vibe was like very inspiring to me about changing the world but i began to be very disenfranchised with what i saw in the world with these different different movements or different things and and then that kind of led me to seek god when i became a christian and saw discipleship i mean i really impacted me like this was jesus's plan for world change and my campus minister at the time his name was chip mitchell um and he leads the philadelphia church now and he's a dear friend and he is this you know and i was a college student and i would you know i'd sit in i remember you know through some of those years you'd you'd sit down with him at 10 a.m and be in a bible study with a friend that i had brought to my campus minister learning how to study the bible and use the bible in a way that would change someone's life and then that Bible study would end, and I'd say to Chip, Chip, what are you doing for the rest of the day? And he'd say, oh, I have a, I have a Bible study at noon, Bible study at 2, Bible study at 4. And, and I remember in those early days, if I didn't have class, and even sometimes if I did, I'd say, hey, you, you might if I just hang out here? And, and, and watching that, mm-hmm. watching that up close and personal uh, and seeing people's lives change through the Word of God, and seeing God sort of be really active and alive in that process. I mean, my own conversion story, I feel very much this way. And when I get to experience other people's conversions, I still feel this way, that God is a living God. He's active in this world. And I love seeing that and being a part of that. And, and I think at that early age, that was why I wanted to go into the ministry. I love studying the Bible with people. I loved the idea of, of helping others. And so I graduated in and, and the and the minister at her church his name was Jimmy Allen and he's still in New England leading churches here and but uh he asked me to when I graduated if I wanted to go be a campus minister and so I I did that I graduated on whatever it was May 24th and on June 1st I was campus minister in her campus ministry oh, we were already dating we were already dating at the time but um and we did that for 7 months and helped a bunch of people become christians and then about 7 months later the church in Boston Cause we were in Hartford, Connecticut church in Boston was looking to really revamp the campus ministry. And so they sort of asked us, it wasn't really being asked back then, but they, <laughs> they, they kind of asked us to move to Boston to learn campus ministry and to do that. So she actually became a minister while she was still in school. She, wow. we got married while she was still a student. We were basically, she was basically in the ministry kind of finishing up her schooling uh, while campus ministers at BU and BC.
2: Yeah. And I think for me, again, I felt inspired growing up watching um, my parents, watching other heroes in the ministry, seeing lives changed. And um, I remember helping a friend become a Christian in high school and the joy of seeing how the Bible worked in people's lives and the way that it was able to transform. Uh, we had uh, family next door become Christians a son in my grade and another in my sister's grade, and the whole family became Christians. And I think seeing, seeing what the Bible did to bring families together, to change people's lives, to give people purpose. Uh, going into college, I debated wanting to go into broadcast journalism or writing um, Had passions in that area. But I think I just felt like, what else could I do that I would love more than getting to make an impact and just see people's lives changed with all of my time? So I think it pretty quickly for me, you know, I got disillusioned by, you know, the media and what what it could offer as hope, and quickly felt like I don't want to do anything else, and um, fell in love with a man who wanted the same dreams. Yeah, which was such a blessing.
1: So I, I remember, as a college student, when I was leading my first Bible discuss, Bible talk, not the discussion itself, but this group of young Christians, that I was also a young Christian, I remember that they were coming over to my apartment for, like, me to host a let's change the world talk, and what are we going to do this semester, and and I remember I came up with first, you know, first Samuel 17, David and Goliath. And let's inspire the other warriors who are watching Goliath. And I remember having this whole talk about let's go evangelize and, you know, insecure, nervous. Is this going to do anything? And then and then like that week, that next week, one of the guys in my Bible talk, his name is Kevin. And I'm, you know, he and he and he lived with me at the time uh, we were in an apartment off campus. He shared his faith with this guy named John. And then, if I, I'm going to have to remember this correctly because it's such a crazy story. He shared to say this guy named John. John gave him his number. He called John because John said he was interested. He was a grad student at UMass. John said he was interested in studying the Bible. Kevin dialed the wrong number and left a message for this other guy whose name was also John <laughs> about, hey, I know you're interested in studying the Bible. Uh, So call me at this number. So this other John gets the message and actually is interested in looking for a Bible discussion. He calls my apartment asking for Kevin. I pick up the phone. I have no idea who this person is because I'm the wrong Kevin. We end up figuring all this out. John gets baptized. He's like a 35-year-old. His wife gets baptized. His teen daughter gets baptized. And I thought, this all came from a Bible verse that I shared with a group of guys in my in my you know my dorm my apartment building. It was things like that that made me want to give my life up for uh, to, to do the ministry.
0: Wow, wow. Okay, so then you led the campus ministry for thirteen years together, and then you've been leading the downtown ministry for seven years, and then the last year or so you've been leading the Boston Church. Is that right?
1: That is about right. Yeah. We moved in 99 to Boston and we led, we didn't, we didn't come here um, sort of leading the entire ministry. We moved here. We really, uh, Randy McKean and Kay were sort of training Chip and Ruby Mitchell uh, who were discipling the campus ministers. And we were one of them and we led kind of a, a segment of the Boston campus ministry. And then about three or four years later, we took it over. So we probably took it over about the worst moment, 2004, things were a total disaster. And um, and they were a disaster from, you know, 03, 04, 05. 06, we really started to see we things. Were
2: questioning that question you just asked us. Oh, yeah. Why did we go in the ministry?
1: Right. Yeah, different question. Why do we stay in the ministry? It right. became a very <laughs> quick question. But um, in 04, 05, in the midst of a lot of church turmoil, that we were, you know, um, we took it over. And I would say from like 04, 05, to you know when we when we came out you know for the last next next that, that next 10 years 15 years we really saw a revival in the campuses downtown and then in 2014 we we became the region leader for the downtown region where the where the campus ministry resides i mean the campus downtown ministry campus is in the downtown region so we kind of became there and then we did that for about 7 years before we were asked to uh, to lead the entire boston church
0: wow okay yeah. I, I just have got to ask: You've had some really great disciples, obviously. What was it like getting discipled by Doug Arthur?
1: You know, I have said to people um, that there are some people that have trained and discipled me that it it, it when we were having fun, it felt like work. <laughs> With Doug, it was exactly the opposite. It was a lot of while you were working. Uh, it it just felt like you were really most of those years. It was just a total blast. Now I I, I feel like and you know, I really have deep convictions about this. I mean, from Jimmy and Ania Allen discipled us. Chip and Ruby Mitchell discipled us. Randy and Kay McKean, uh for a period of time sort of discipled us. And um, and certainly uh, Doug was a huge influence in my life and in, in terms of raising me up. Mike and Scarlett Van Aken are the chairman of the eldership in Boston, they've discipled us at different times. Richard and Lillian Hislop, who were region leaders in the Boston church at times, discipled us. You know, now we get a lot of discipling from uh, Jimmy and Maria Rogers, AT and Marcy Arneson, who lead the Chicago church kind of help. And I really feel like we've been really blessed with some amazing people to. And I believe that it's the Holy Spirit that moves in that process. You know, I really believe that. You have to, if, if those relationships are gonna go well, you have to trust that God is involved or else things don't go quite as well and and doug was certainly a huge influence in my life and you know i think probably the the biggest you know the biggest influences in my life the thing i feel you know so blessed is wyndham shaw's influence in my life mm-hmm. i mean he my father-in-law who was just uh you know who helped to kind of even convert doug down in the carolinas when he was building churches out of crossroads there but um you know, Wyndham's influence in my life has been huge. I, I was one time helping my older brother who is a disciple and we were talking about his marriage and, and, and I was helping him with a couple of things and we were talking it through, this is a few years ago. And after the conversation was kind of ending and he felt very helped and I was sort of thinking, wow, those are some great answers I was giving about this. And my brother said, man, it's great that you married into Wyndham's family because otherwise you would never be able to help me with all of these things <laughs> and, and and I laughed and thought that's certainly true So mm. we've had I've been really blessed to have some incredibly uh, influential people in my life and and that's a whole list of them but
0: mm-hmm. mm. you, you seem to inspire us a, a culture of spiritual ambition. Um, I talked to a person who visited your church this past year. And the, the thing he shared, he said, I talked to a lot of people, number of different people, a lot of young guys and almost every person I talked to said, I want to go into the ministry, young men, young women wanting to pursue the ministry. How do you do that? How do you create that kind of culture?
1: I think um, I think that's a great word culture. I do think that's uh, it's not an accident Uh, when those cultures exist I think they have to be built but I I guess you know I would I don't I don't exactly know the answer I'll give you I'll give you an answer that I think I I guess uh, works in my mind but I, I really believe that God is real and I believe that because he's real his living presence helps us to have victory in our lives. And I mean that in the evangelist, not uh, perfect lives, not lives without challenges. In fact, a lot of times, obviously being a Christian brings more trouble on your head sometimes, but I I mean, in terms of evangelistically, I think that, and I think we believe in it. We, we, the idea of a, of a person, a young man. And I feel like so many experience a Christianity that is like, okay, let's have a Bible talk. And they sit in a Bible talk and nobody comes and it's, Discouraging and demoralizing, and and maybe so, you know, it, it's an evangelism itself is such a, uh, it can be such a discouraging uh, a pursuit. I mean, it, it's like baseball, you know, it's like success in baseball is failing seven out of ten times. You know, if you bat three hundred, that's a success, but that means you're you're failing seven times out of ten. And evangelism is worse than that by a by a bazillion times. And yet, and yet. I, I think that God does move, and and I think when we can help people, young people or any people, taste. You know, I we train people. This is let's go, let's go share our faith. Let's go, let's have those deep relationships. If they trust me, let's go share our faith together. I'm talking to Christians, Kingdom kids, not Kingdom kids, Gentiles, and if we get out there, and you know they're doing it because we're encouraging them. This is how it's done. But once someone meets somebody. And that person becomes a Christian and they see that person's life change. And it ceases to be something that someone told me to do or some theory about how the world changes, but they actually get to up close and personal, see somebody's life change. And I think I try to gather people that have that experience. And I don't think everybody should go into the ministry. I don't think everybody has that gift and nor do they need you. And that's not the only good gift in God's church. But people do need to pursue it. And there are people that need to be raised up for it. And I think because we're we're trying to create that culture of victory in in evangelism and, and people are experiencing that. I think that's why we get people that raise their hand and say, I, I'd want to give up my MIT engineering degree and I'd want to give up my my BU or whatever UMass Boston degree to, to try to, to try to do this. And I, I think that I think that that's a big part of it. I don't know if you have a thought.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think when I look at a lot of young people today, I think there are a lot of young people who have a lot of ambition and who wanna do great things and change the world. And I know, you know, like Kevin said, we've had amazing trainers in our life and such incredible experiences, but we also did go through a time in the church where spiritual ambition was very competitive and it was, you know, kind of a dog eat dog world and it may it just was burdensome, pressurized and and yet there was still this mission of people needing to become Christians, but we had to figure out how to do it in the right way. And I think we have learned and been taught and learned through our own lessons and mistakes and and life, I think, you know, young people who want to do great things they need you know they have expectations of themselves and i think in the ministry it's you've got to have high expectations for people but you've got to also have very close relationships with people and building a spirit of unity where that's what i even love about the group right now we've got an incredibly ambitious group of young ministers but they are so connected and united with each other and for each other and so they work very hard But i think they enjoy doing it the friendships are there it's an atmosphere where we're for each other where we celebrate each other's victories and that creates something where you see god moving and people's lives being changed and you're all in it together it's it's a family it's victories you're sharing with each other and i think it's a lesson that that so much of the church had to learn but to be able to to harness that together and bring both the, the family and the relationships where people feel affirmed and believed in and encouraged and built up and that they can use their own unique gifts and everyone's got different sets of them, but figuring out how they can use what they have to make a difference and have fun and connection with each other and with those training them in the process, I think it's a good balance that has worked well here.
0: So high expectations plus developing a close family feel doing a little research on you. Um, that's one of the things that was shared about you guys is that there is a church culture of close knit, deep relationships. And that's, that's pretty impressive that that that's the kind of reputation that you have. Um, I don't. I know you've got to be a Boston fan, but when I was thinking about both of you guys, I thought it seems almost like you guys are Yankees fans because you, you seem to have the knack for attracting some really amazing talent or free agents to Boston. I mean, Stuart and Ashley Maines, uh, Brian and Christine Campbell, Glenn Petruzzi, Chaz and Olivia, Zantano. You know, I, I start hearing these names going to Boston I'm like oh my gosh you know his salary cap must be super high and he's just like stacking it (laughs) (laughs) I mean it's pretty awesome tell me what's driving that okay did was this like a master plan or was it just like hey you know the opportunity came up talk about that please
1: Well, first of all, curse your tongue for talking to me about being a Yankee fan. That's definitely not the case. And and we, Boston's won four world championships and then we, Yankees have only won one since 2000. And so, and Boston brought in a lot of good free agents, but, but um, no, you know, I think, um, I mean, of course, I've only been the lead evangelist for the Boston church for the last year and a half. And so, um, in terms of some big grand plan that wasn't really the seat exactly that I was sitting in. But I think there is, I, I'd say um, what Melissa just shared, I think is a is a piece. You know, we 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 we've preached this a few different times lately. You know, unity is not easy. And uh, because we're all different. And my wife and I are so different in our gift sets, in the way we think about things and we talk about we've always been good for the church because we do bring such different gifts as long as we don't kill each other, you know, in the process as, as we're bringing them. Um, and I think there has been this sense as people have come in, I, I don't think it works. I don't think it's a very productive environment for people if it's high expectations with low connection. And I also obviously don't think it's a good, very good productive environment if it's high uh, uh, connection without any expectations that, that doesn't work either. If, if, I mean, it works to have friendships, but that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying, that's not just what we're trying to do. We're trying to change the world. And I think, I think that's what we, that's what we're trying to build here. Very high expectations. You know, I think when, when you have those without the relationships, people burn out, people get isolated, people get into trouble. Uh, people do stupid things and, uh, and they get, you know, um, and and also when it's just relationships without expectation, you know, expectations are dangerous. You know, having high expectations and 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 high production. I just came from a region leaders meeting with with the the leaders, the, the nine region leaders of the Boston Church. These are these are 64-year-olds down to 30, 35 year olds. And we were setting evangelism goals, you know, for the month. And we don't do that every month, but uh, these men are willing to to do these sort of challenging things, and I, I think we need to bring a little bit more of that back. But it only works, I think, because we are able to talk, and, and there there is that connection uh, with each other. And that's what I think these young ones have shared. I, I think one of the things that they've that they felt as they've come in is there is training. You know, we did a well, well. I don't need to get into that yet. I think you might ask a question, but anyway, that, that would probably be my piece there. I, I don't know if Melissa would I, add I hope to that.
2: that- you know, people can feel safe. I think we want people to feel taken care of and that they're coming into a family. And, you know, certainly I didn't come into this role having, you know, wanting anything to do with this being something that we just did by ourselves or that we felt like we just knew what we were doing with. And I think the idea that, that we can have transparency and be okay with our weaknesses and that people know them and can feel safe to talk to us about them and vice versa. It creates an atmosphere where we know what we want to be, but we can talk to each other about where we're not and feel very safe and loved through the whole process of it. I think Kevin, Kevin has always, he's taught, this is one of the things he's taught me the most in our marriage, just in vulnerability and transparency. You grow up as a kingdom kid and you feel like, you know, to whom much has been given, much is demanded. And You know you you feel like you should know what you're doing and because i've been given so much i should have it all together and i had to learn early on uh marrying this guy and our very opposite personalities um just we we fought and it was a whole new world to me of going oh my goodness conflict and seeing my weaknesses but i think it taught me from him early on that we would die if we weren't transparent with people Mm -hmm. and all I got back was affirmation of love and people feeling more connected. The uglier we were, the more connected people felt, which you know was a, a new thing for me, but it, I think it has helped us, saved us in our marriage, but I think it's what we want to bring to the ministry here and want people to feel like, no, you can grow and you can have weaknesses and we can all have different different strengths, but as long as we're open about it and willing to grow and it be a safe place to do that, where we can feel loved and believed in, you know, then yeah, let's go change the world together. It works well.
1: No. And I, I would also just add, I remember when Brian Campbell interviewed here and, uh, I think it was when he was interviewing, it might've been after he had already come and decided to be here, but he was talking with the people that were interviewing him, which was me, but it was also, you know, we have a, we have 65 year old region leaders and, uh, and, and 60 year old, and they're, they're amazing people. And, and they were sharing with Brian, I think it was Brian, um, how excited they were for him to come in and take over. And he, and, you know, and, and rise to be the region leader that succeeds the, you know, uh, Mike Van Ocken has just become the uh, the lead, the chairman of the elders for the Boston church. He's a region leader in the region that Brian's in. So probably that's in, that's going to be, in, that is in transition. It's already been made public. He hasn't taken over yet, but he came to me and said, you know, wow, and, and I had been lead evangelist here for like six months at the time, and he said, "Wow, you've really done a great job of helping the culture here to be such about succession." And I, I quickly said, "That's that is not me." You know that the reality is the elders and the region leaders of the Boston Church, the senior people. It's why they hired us. I mean, I'm not young; I'm 46, but but I'm not 60 either. And that they gave this job to someone that was much you know younger than even some of the other people they were interviewing. I think there is this sense in Boston like not we just want to give it to anybody. you got to be ready to take the torch. Uh, if You're going to take it. And I, I think sometimes that's a lesson in and of itself, you know, but, but I think that there is this spirit in Boston of let's go. How can we create? And it doesn't mean even the guys are retiring, but they might be stepping into a different role to let a younger guy step into the, the lead role in a particular region or place. And that's a, I feel like that spirit here is very evident and strong. And I feel like the young people have felt it and seen it and they've made comments that it doesn't feel like that's the general vibe in all of the places that they, that they, you know, that they might see. And experience. Right.
2: We're spoiled. I feel blessed upon blessed to be with the staff we have here, even to come in and being 10 years younger than, than a lot of the region leaders that we're leading. And they have had nothing but a spirit of support, encouragement, our biggest fans, And wanting to do it well for the church, you know, as they're getting older, it's, it's not a pass the torch. It's a, you know, let's, we're going to keep ours lit, but let's give it to this next generation eagerly, willingly, excitedly. And uh, it's, it's just beyond uh, even what I can explain how wonderful that atmosphere is to have in, in our senior
0: leaders here. Yeah, That's awesome. That's awesome. Boston has, has had some high volume, high intensity preachers. Uh, I've heard it, heard them called screamers. Um, where does that come from? Okay. I know this is a, I, Kevin, I've heard you preach. You, you're pretty high volume yourself. Um, I heard you back in 2009, you did a lesson for the leaders. I think it was in a Denver leadership conference. I cried. mmm I heard that lesson. I was sitting in the back with my wife, and we were leading our own church. I was selling real estate at the time and leading a a church planting in Oregon, and I cried. Mm. I mean, that rarely happens. I mean, I can remember that time, maybe when I was a young Christian, but I remember you talking about, hey, listen, if you're leading your church and you're the player manager you you got to get out there and you got to swing. You got to you got to do it yourself. Mm. And I was so convicted. I mean, it it moved me, and I just I, I I felt people's eyes looking at me like, "What is the matter with this guy?" But I just bowed my head after that lesson and just wept because mm. I was so convicted. Because it'd been a while since I'd met anybody who'd become a Christian. Now, I was planting my own church. I was really trying to do the best I could, but it touched me. And, and at that time, you were a younger person you know you're 10 years younger than me and for the first time i felt like i you know i'm in my 40s and getting older and it it just was a a sword right through me um tell me where does this come from this this intensity
1: uh talk about that please if you're talking about volume then that's I that's
2: genetics.
1: Then that might be genetic because I, I was on a walk in the neighborhood with my wife last week and we were taught we were talking and she said why are you yelling right now you know neighborhood I kid I'm, you
2: not Kevin has Zoom meetings and he we're working on getting a basement door but <laughs> he will be in the basement and I will be two floors up in my room with the door closed on another Zoom meeting and we can all hear him.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the volume is is one thing and that's probably but i actually don't think that's what you're asking me about. Exactly. I, I, uh, I don't think, I think what you're asking me, you know, when I read my Bible and when I look at the world, when I read my Bible, the description it gives for the role that I'm supposed to play is, is preacher, proclaimer, herald, prophet, and, and things and teacher as well. And and, and those kind of things, but those words, um, those are words. I mean, when you read the scriptures about Jesus's sermons, I mean, or John the Baptist's sermons, to me, it's very hard. I mean, you know, absolutely, we are to encourage and comfort, and the Word of God is so empowering. I totally believe that, but it also says correct and rebuke, and and there are these things in there, and there's an edge. I, I mean, I, I have a biblical conviction that. That, that that's what these preachers and proclaimers are supposed to be. And when I look at the world and look at the church, and I I love the church, I, I love the international churches of Christ. I, I just think it's gold. I think it's right. just so wonderful. Always things we have to change. And and honestly, sometimes when I walk into church, well, I you know, I have to turn my brain off when I want to worship. I'm not looking to critique the sermon and the, whoever's preaching, I want to worship. But well, there's plenty of things that have to change, and I and when I look at the world and the need that is in, you know, we, we did a um we for our staff meetings last year last from September to uh you know December through December of of 2021, we were uh, we were talking about building momentum, and we were studying out the books of of Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai and Zechariah, and I love that. I love that era. I love that, that period. And, and it talks about how the, the work stalled, that the builders stopped building. And I think it's Ezra chapter 4. And then these prophets came in. And it says their preaching strengthened these people, and they got to work again. And, they, and, of course, you can read what's going on in Haggai and Zechariah. But we did a whole staff meeting on this. And we had Larry Reed. I asked Larry Reed. Larry Reed is one of the region leaders here in the Boston church. He's one of my dear friends. He's an amazing evangelist. And he is an amazing preacher. And he, I said, just do a lesson for us on just preaching that 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 inspires, that pushes. And he did this lesson on on passionate preaching. And he just went off. I mean, he was he was preaching to the staff. He was preaching to the young staff. And he was going off. And then we kind of responded in the staff meeting. And people were sharing. And one of the guys that got up and shared was Jimmy Rogers, who's also an old old 65-year-old preacher. And, and Jimmy at one point was sharing just conviction and he was being vulnerable, but he turned to the young preachers. He turned to the 35-year-olds and the 30-year-olds and the campus ministers who are 20, the Stuart Mainses and the Brian Campbells and the Austin Bulbuses of the world. And he just said, guys, you got to make aggressive mistakes. Don't, don't almost say something. I mean, he right. really was that. And after the meeting was over, and even in the midst of the meeting, some of those guys came up and said, You know, it's been a long time since we heard older preachers telling us to sort of make those bold, aggressive mistakes. And and I didn't know that that was true. It it sort of surprised me, but but it it does feel to me like, you know, this is a biblical conviction. I mean, I think we need to, you know, I, I think that's what I see when I look at Jesus. And that's what I see when I look at Paul and certainly Jeremiah and those guys that there was... You know, there's, there's, there's conviction that's got to come and it's got, it takes courage. You know, it takes walking that lonely road and it takes having people in your life. And we're not, we're not, you know, we need, that's why we need so much help and input. We need to be transparent ourselves. But, but, uh, you know, I one time listened to a preacher and you could tell he wasn't doing well and he was preaching through first Samuel 17, David and Goliath. And he had his arm on the pulpit and his hand on his face and i sat there and i thought this is so unbelievably boring and how do you make first samuel 17 boring <laughs> and, mm. and i just i just don't think that's what god intended give
0: give me 3 points that you think would improve people's preaching you know if let's say a person's leading a smaller ministry coming out of covid you got to revive the ministry people are in disarray spiritually all over the map give me some bullet points
1: yeah, I, I think um, it, it's hard for me, and this is, it's hard for me not to start with this. You have to love the Bible. I mean, you just have to love the Bible. You got to read the Bible. And I'm, I'm so thrilled to be on this podcast. And my campus ministers know about this podcast and said, you're going on the Rob Skinner podcast. I said, yeah. So I had, I think it's awesome. But like, I feel like so much of the generation that I talk to, it's like, they're not reading the Bible. They're listening to a podcast about the Bible Mm -hmm. or something. And I'm not against those things that can enlighten, but I think you got to memorize scripture. I've got the entire book of Romans memorized. I've got the entire book of second Timothy memorized. I got Psalms memorized half of it. I I just, I have to have it in me. If you don't have it in you, then you don't, you're not going to have an accurate read on what you're looking at, um, you know, when it comes to, when it comes to, um, the church and, and, and the needs of the church. I think that's probably the first thing I would say, you know, I think, um, I think good preaching brings the Bible to life. And, you know, I I think good preaching has, I, I, when I train my young preachers, you know, every, every Sunday we sit with college kids or campus ministers and we do little you know, intern meetings, not little intern meetings are awesome, but we have a student preaching session where, You have to, uh, somebody comes in with a five-minute lesson, and they give it five minutes, and then for five minutes, we critique them, and it's it's always really encouraging, and then when that person's preaching, I give someone a scripture, they have to go into the back room and in five minutes, write a lesson, and then they come in, and we critique them too, but I always talk about explanation, illustration, application, and that's what I was taught, right? You got to explain the Bible well. You, you, you tell us what was happening. Tell us who, what Jesus was saying. Tell us what the original hearers would be hearing when they're talking about it. And then you got to illustrate. You know, Jesus told parables. Jesus told stories. And they're not just for entertainment. They're, they're, they're to bring things to life. And you got to illustrate and you got to show. It's not just explain all the time. But then there's application. And application is where, you know, Paul's telling Timothy, correct, rebuke, encourage. And I think that's where it's not just theories the preacher needs to say to the congregation and now you you know it's 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 one thing when you say you know evangelism is a good thing but it's another thing to say evangelism a good thing and you have got to take it higher you aren't doing it this way there's got to be a you and and we can get crazy with that but i think good preaching has those three elements Mm -hmm. um you know illustration application and and explanation first to really bring the Bible, let God's word speak to people. Um, you know, I, I always think fearlessness and fearlessness and boldness, you know, and courage. That's, that's the, that's, I mean, that's the world we're in. It's it, it's funny. I mean, public speaking is like people's one of the people would rather uh, it's one of the number one fears, you know, public right. speaking and preachers, not only are public speakers, but they're actually public speakers that need to actually Sometimes call, inspire, and sober a congregation. So you walk up yeah. the stage when you've done that, that's a lonely hour right there. When, that's right. If, I mean, sometimes the best preaching is not going to be the stuff that makes everybody laugh. And so it's a scary thing. Hmm. And that's why it requires a lot of courage. And, and, and you know, I also, the last thing I guess I would say to this question is getting other preachers and other church leaders in your life to look at your church, to look at your preaching, to listen to your preaching. You know, we did this last year with the region leaders of the Boston church. It's a very humble group of men, but we tagged everybody up. Everybody had to have a friend who was going to listen to one of their sermons and then give them good point, bad point. And then they needed to bring that good point, bad point to the region leaders meeting. And we shared about it. And it was, we're laughing and it's fun and it's hilarious, but it's real. And I think... We, you gotta have other people that have that same view. They're church builders. They're church leaders. You gotta have them take a look at what your church looks like and 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 and, and how your sermons sound. I think that's invaluable information.
0: You guys led the campus ministry for a long time, and you're still actively involved in it. What advice would you give for energizing campus ministry in the 2020s?
1: We, we have a, we have a campus going, we were going into last semester with 65 college students downtown, which is woefully small. It's just so, and we brought some ministers down and that's the area that, that I'm kind of focusing my time and attention in terms of training. And I met a guy at BU last semester who became a Christian and I'm all fired up by that. But in last semester, those 65 students baptized 18 kids and we're up at 90 now and our goal is to get to 300. And my advice would be, first, people are as open today as they've been at any other. I mean, you hear all this stuff, you know, and and how to reach a millennial and how to reach this as though as though people in the 70s and 80s were just like naturally wanting to flock into churches. Um, and, it, and it wasn't right. Jesus, you had courageous souls sharing their faith with tons of people and the hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. And, you know, we work hard to, to meet people. I think that there's many people in this city and, and I believe that, and we're seeking seekers and, uh, and I, and I, and I believe that. And I think, you know, I do think our campus ministries need to get more reoriented. I think we need the the mix of gentile and and sort of kingdom kid uh the the jew gentile mix that god sort of talks about in the book of ephesians that that coming together mix um i think we're not mixed the right way in a lot of our ministries now in 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 these sort of the church kid element and and we built the back uh our, some of our and most Courageous, effective campus students and campus ministers are Kingdom kids. So I don't want to give the wrong impression, but but this idea that the way to reach these kids is to sort of lower standards and to uh, sort of everything's this this internal conversation with the church about all these sort of peripheral issues. You know, I I think we need to preach Jesus. We need to find a few students that are willing to do that and. And Jonathan and his armor bearer need to get out there on our campus and two people turn into five people, turn into 10 people as the semesters go on. And, and to me, I know I, you know people say it's old school and all that kind of stuff, but to me it's, it's just preaching the word on campus and being courageous and finding victory and uh, learning how to study the Bible with people. You know, we, I think that's what's amazing about campus ministry. You can become an expert in how to study the Bible with a non-Christian because there's just so many there, and um, no, so many people, it's, it's such a willing age demographic to sit down with these non-Christians, and you know this idea of meeting someone. I, I love, I love when this happens. It's even some Kingdom kid who's only used to the people that they've seen become Christians are the children of members in the church, and that's awesome. But the idea the first time this kingdom kid from the Ministry is now to campus ministry and they met someone that was a complete stranger to them three weeks ago and now they're a disciple and they're one of their soulmate best friends i mean it's just an amazing thing but i just think that's 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 a, the opportunity for that exists as much right now as it ever has and and we need courageous souls who go out there and 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 share i don't know unless you would share anything Ke- like kevin yeah.
0: I can hear someone saying, well, that's that's easy for you to say, Kevin, you don't come from the church, you you have a, a salesman type personality, you're a real aggressive type, outgoing extrovert, and that, that style doesn't work. That kind of straight ahead, let's just go meet a ton of people, that doesn't work. I want to hear what the Kingdom Kid says, what Melissa has to say, and, and see what her view is on this.
2: Yeah, I mean a lot of what he was saying I would share but add add a perspective to it because I think I think this idea of our campus ministries today we do have a lot of kingdom kids certainly um we're huge fans of kingdom kids our our children are the kingdom kids of kingdom kids you know grandparents <laughs> on both sides and and I think there there's so much wisdom and stability that is brought in from kingdom kids and I think you bring in those that are converted from the world and the gratitude of being in the world and being changed by Jesus is so apparent to these people who become Christians. And so it's really this beautiful blend when you can bring them together. But I think these kingdom kids have got to come in and feel safe and feel like they, that we've won their trust that they can trust that they can be heard. Because again, I think even in this, in this generation, um, I don't, I don't really think this generation is struggling with, um, saying what they feel or having a lot of opinions. And that can be a great thing. As long as we create an atmosphere where they, they can talk and and feel listened to and heard and know how to, to win trust and help them feel safe to also make sure that their opinions and perspectives are really biblically based. And I think that's that's the part with these kingdom kids and certainly what I had to learn and being safe to be real. And again, to be able to be honest with, hey, I don't like all these evangelism goals or talking like that and well, why? And what, what do you think of? And, you know, because I think We also know how to put on a good front. We've seen how to do it our whole lives. And so I think being able to go, it's okay if you don't know what you're doing and what you're bringing adds so much. And how can we, because the the Gentile kids who are coming in full of gratitude have also a lot of times grown up in broken families and, and get to come in to see some of these relationships and families that that a lot of the kingdom kids have. And and again, really be able to learn from each other and have best friendships. And I think it's also cultivating the, you know, if you're a great relationship builder, there's so much that can happen in your classes and with the friends that you meet. Although I've also seen on the other hand, I think when you've got big teen ministries, it can be easy to be a little bit insular and only know how to have relationships with other kingdom kids. Right. And so I think there's also got to be a training of, yeah, we're not going to get worldly, but how do you become and befriend uh, these students and kids who who don't have spiritual convictions? And then from those friendships, be able to turn that into really sharing jesus with people that it's not just going to be you know i think kingdom kids have to be won over sometime though we're not just sharing out pamphlets for a bible talk but it can be we're sharing our lives people can see that change we can have friendships that turn into to becoming christians and i think that's that's a whole side that we've had to learn and work out work at helping these kids feel so validated and understand what their gifts and what they bring to the table while cultivating a you know, humility and learning to, to share your opinions, but also go, it's okay to need to learn and to have weaknesses is, is a good thing that that's only helping us all to learn how to be more like Jesus. And then it, it creates a culture. Once you start seeing people become Christians on both sides, sharing your faith wildly and having you yeah. know friends in your class that be, in your dorm that become Christians
1: right.
2: that you start seeing, okay, this this is an amazing thing
1: no and i would just add to what i said in a campus ministry you need the courageous you need those 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 sort of davids but as a campus minister and my advice to campus ministers would be the idea that freshmen are coming in from a teen ministry and have never done this before in this way that we would think about it and is completely frightening to a lot of these kids that the campus minister needs to be it needs to be the pace setting guy but he also needs to be the mom and the dad you know my my history when i'm campus minister is i've got the seniors and the juniors and the in the sophomores who kind of know what we're doing and have worked into it but i'm just hanging with the freshmen we're having a great time and then maybe and i don't even tell the freshman when i get with them hey we're gonna go share our faith because they might not show up but but if they knew i was taking them out but we'll go get lunch they'll say hey why don't we go share our faith for a minute and then i go and share my faith with 15 people while this person stands next to me. And I remember Niles Radel, he's a, he's not in the ministry, but he's in the, he's a father in the Boston church now. But I remember when he was a, he's a kingdom kid. And the first time he shared his faith on campus. And I said, after I'd shared my faith, like 15 people, and then saying say Niles, all right, that per- you did that one person over there. Why don't you go share your faith with that person? Mm-hmm. And he looked at me like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and, and I said, you can do it. Come on, you can do it. I'm going to stand over here. You go, go, just go invite him to church. Say whatever you want to say. And I saw him go up, and he had his little conversation, and then he kind of walked back to me. And I don't know whether the guy was open or not, but I'm standing back there like, you did it, man. You are just like Jesus. Right. you know." That's right. We are, and he's laughing, and we're having a great time. That's what it's like to be in a, my campus ministry. Right. That this is not like these kids show up in right. September 1st from some teen ministry, and they're scared to death because there's all these expectations, and you better get with it the kingdom kids have to have a willingness to grow. Right. And, but the campus ministers need to know that we're going to develop these kids and the atmosphere that helps them grow is there's zeal, there's pace setters, there's people going for it, but there's a safety and a family that says this is okay that you're not the all-star in this, but just, Hey, let's be willing to try a little bit. And I think when you get that mixture together, people can grow. And and so I have to say that because I do, I I speak the way I speak. And so people feel like I would never want to go near that guy's ministry, (laughs) but that's not what it's like to be in our campus because it's, we're having a blast doing this and the kingdom kids are as well. They are the kingdom kids are just the, the lifeblood of so many of our revivals. And back in 2006, 2007, when we were on our backs as a ministry, and campus ministers back then, and probably, but but back then, there weren't a lot of, that was kind of, the, the kingdom kids were just kind of coming to the fore, and, camp, and campus ministers would say to me, what I had felt at times, which is, you can't build a campus ministry with kingdom kids. And I completely, completely disagree with that. I think that's not true. It just takes, they have to have some humility. Uh, they got to learn how to do this thing, but but some of the most revolutionary, heroic people that I know that are that I still consider my best friends were Kingdom kids that that learned how to do this. But the atmosphere within which these ministries have to teach it have got to have these combinations of mm-hmm. zeal and fervor. But but family and safety, so that people can kind of grow. A lot right.
2: of validation and affirmation.
1: Yeah, yeah, Big
0: time. yeah. Just it's not one one size fits all. It's you no. really have to um, ha- have both. I love your attitude, and I I think about Glenn Petruzzi. I I, I always wonder, are you guys related or something? You guys <laughs> you guys remind me a lot of each other. But I think oh, okay. about and have heard about your work at Harvard and reaching out there, and it's it's very inspiring. But I agree with you. I think. There has to be a militant, straight-ahead approach and a faith that says the fields are right for harvest in 2022, just yeah. as it was in in 1992. There, you know, it's it's got to be. There are open people out there. You guys have stepped into some massive shoes. I I don't know what the current size of Boston is. Is it, it two thousand, three thousand, or
1: 2,200.
0: Okay, so you got 2,000 people. I, I remember reading a book saying the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Mm. You guys got into the ministry to, because you love to study the Bible with people, have consecutive Bible study appointments. Now you're leading a group of nine region leaders. You've got an elders group. You've got you know so many different ministries within your ministry. To talk, talk about the transition to stepping into this type of a role.
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, it, and it's a, uh, I think it's a question that anybody that's in a role like mine uh, has to be haunted by all the time. Uh, because it's so easy to be the business meeting guy and to, to you know, all of those kinds of things. And, and I, I actually feel like it is my role to help the region leaders to keep the main thing, the main thing. I mean, that's that's really what I've got to, you know, we, we have these meetings and, and, and as I've watched the role in the past and it's so easy to let every region leaders meeting be about the calendar, the agenda, the upcoming meeting that we have to plan, the budget, this, that, and you just go through just gigantic stretches of time and you not you haven't talked about the harvest how we do in building a harvest. I mean, I just came from a region leaders meeting just now, where that's what we were doing. We were we were setting evangelism goals. We were talking about building an accountable culture in each of our regions. And what do we think about that? And but keeping that conversation at the fore is 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 so huge. But for me, it's also. I mean, that my my answer would be. And you're not asking me what how, how what's hard about leading a huge church. You're you're asking me how do I stay focused. And for me, I've got to have a place. I've got it. This is my ministry. You know, I, I don't, and, and for me, it's the campus ministry. I, I lead the campus ministry. I'm leading the, I'm uh, the lead evangelist of the Boston church. So I'm just running the staff and all these things, but the downtown campus and training those people and being involved and being in Bible studies and sharing my faith and, and, and going, that's, that's, I have to be somewhere or else it's hard for me to maintain an inspiration that the church can grow and that the culture can change if my own faith is not being fed by what God is doing in some place that I'm plugged into. It for me right now that is that is the campus uh, that is the campus ministry. And so and I've led other regions, but that's probably my first answer. My wife is is actually incredible. I would say at this she <laughs> she the idea of becoming lead evangelist and women's ministry leader was not something that was initially like. This is so thrilling to me because you're talking to me now about I'm working with staff a lot more than working with my neighbors and working with, and this was a conversation that uh, we've had to have and, and it's something that she's well, deeply passionate and about. And
2: for me, I just feel like the grassroots and what I love is is working with people. It's certainly helping people become Christians, but it's also the relational, you know, just helping people feel closer to Jesus and, and encouraging and believing in people and so, you know, we transitioned into this role, it was the week, uh, I think we um, we got the call that we got the job on November 15th. My birthday was November 17th and my dad's one year passing anniversary was a couple of days after that. And so it had been a whirlwind and obviously COVID and um, a bunch of other things as we all know. And so it already, felt like a lot of loss to me and I think the idea of leaving my region role where I was constantly you know it was it was just being with people and going to a lot more meetings and working with a lot more staff who were amazing you know it was it was a hard it was a hard few months just trying to figure out those the first six months and I think for me it did go back I have to have my my place where I am doing the things that I love and the things that I, as you said, first made me fall in love with the ministry. And so I think I had to to create really good boundaries and rhythms to go, I have to have time where I am plugged into my community, where I am taking time to be with my neighbors and friendships and doing the things that keep me connected to being in love with Jesus and getting the, the you know, again, so many more meetings, so many more, early mornings. And yet, um, I think I just had to to make sure I held on to I've got to walk with God and be very, very close to him and make sure I'm getting my strength from there, but have all my my same, you know, swimming holes of, of where I was going to plug in and be able to, to be with people who I know need Jesus and that I felt like could be back still doing that same grassroots kind of stuff because otherwise I was just getting weary and burdened and feeling like you know meetings meetings don't uh, fill you up and I think as well trying to build that with the women in Boston to keep us very relationally close and connected and and it not just being meetings but something that fed our hearts and and helped us to inspire each other to stay faithful and um, you know in our mission and purpose to be close to God and help other people.
1: Well, I sort of feel like in our own churches and at the international church of Christ level, you know, you get in a position like this in Boston, leading the Boston church, and there's been a lot of phone calls of we need you on this committee and we need you to do that. And I'm so, so unbelievably grateful for those that are serving in those roles. (laughs) And I'm sure that I will serve in those roles at some point. But my answer is not right now. I can't. You know, Boston, Boston's been 2,200 people or 2,300 people or 2,100 people or 2,200 people or 2,100 people for 20 years. We've been this way. And I love the church. And, and that is not uncharacteristic of most of our churches in our movement. So I'm not, Boston's not anything that, that anybody else is struggling, not struggling with. And what we really need is not someone that can pull on all the different strings and conversations that have to things that get fixed we need some models of growth. We need some examples of healthy churches, right? This is burning on me. It just if at 2030, we are 2200 people. I I am just that cannot be what God wants. That's right. It just cannot be what God wants. And so that sort of helps me because I feel haunted by it. Mm. And and I know that it's not easy. And if it was easy, then we'd have done it a long time ago. It's not easy with all the distractions and all the different things and all the history and all the stuff, but it, it drives me because I feel like it's it's just such a need.
0: Melissa, let me ask you this. How have you managed to cope with the passing of your dad uh, during all this transition?
2: Um, you know, it's, it's day by day, but I feel like I think one of the hardest but also best lessons we learn as a Christian is that We can't learn without going through the suffering and as much as it has been the worst thing in my life to lose my dad, it has undoubtedly been where I've seen myself grow and learn more than I, I would have. And so I think it's, it's making sure that I'm taking the space to be sad when I need to be sad. But, uh, I remember a conversation that my dad had with me, um, He had something similar to ALS, so it took everything from him but his mind. But while he could still speak, um, we had a conversation, the two of us, in his living room where he just said, you know, I hope and and yet I can also, you know, I, I hope that I will always know how much he loves me, which I do. But, you know, he said, my only fear is that I don't ever want what I'm going through to affect yours or your grandchildren's or my grandchildren's faith. And I, I love that I can be a rock and a refuge for you, but you don't need me. God's got to be your everything and enough. And we both, you know, I can cry now, but we both cried through that time. But I think he was helping me. You know, my dad was the most amazing man that I know, but I think how he died may have been one of his greatest legacies in the way that he, you know, another, another conversation while he still had his speech of just going, I've done what I, what I wanted to do in my generation with my faith, and, and I get to go be with God now. And I think it gave me a perspective of what I had and what I have as a father relationship taught me everything I knew and know about God, but that I needed God to be enough and God to be my strength. And I think after he died, we went through a really tumultuous time in the church and in the world with COVID and all the racial and social injustices, and I had to wrestle. It was the hardest time I've ever gone through in my faith, and yet it has brought me to a deeper place with God where I think prayerfully and hopefully I can also relate to pain more, but has taught me um, more about God's strength than I could have ever imagined, where I feel like he is my refuge and my rock, and I miss my dad every day. But feel like the greatest lesson of, of making God, what gets me through everything, you know, is one I know I'm going to keep learning, but one that I feel eternally grateful
0: mm-hmm.
2: to, to be God's daughter.
0: Wow. Thank you. What advice would you guys give to someone who wanted to make this life count?
1: I mean, I would say very simply, uh, love God. And I don't mean to be simple. I, I, I really don't. I, I, when I think of that 20 year old in 1995, and I think about the life that I get to live today, uh, I very much feel like, how did the boundary lines fall like this for me? And I feel lucky among the blessed. Uh, I, I know it, but I would say, love God, love Jesus. Love his word. You know, I, I do see I, I've never felt and maybe it's just just the feeling, but, you know, but I've never felt like the world has crept into our church more than it has over these last couple of years. And all of these different thoughts and theories and thinking. And, man, the Bible to me is just the it's just life. It's just the, the big, bright light. And I just I think you got to love the Bible, try to orient your life on it and seek his kingdom first i mean that's that's my that's why I imperfectly uh wholeheartedly get up off the ground and do it again i mean uh where this is not this is a life by faith not a life by perfection to a law but a wholehearted devotion to god his word and to his kingdom to me that's what i would say that that's it that's all i got i mean that's those are it's 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 God to me. And, mm. uh, I feel very grateful that I, that I can do that. That's awesome. Yeah.
2: I I agree. I mean, I think we can't live as Christians for the blessings. I love that song. You know, we can't love the, the healing more than the healer and just the idea that that life is full and good as a Christian, but it's all about heaven and getting to be with God. And, you know, I think even as, as I just shared to watch my dad, live the life that he did and be able to die in a place where he was able to say I don't have regrets and I have I have done what I've wanted God to use me for to the best of my ability and to feel like we can bring as many people with us to heaven that heaven is real it's what we're living for that that life is a mist and I want to enjoy this mist and appreciate the blessings but know that that this is not, this world is not our home and yeah. that that God is enough and that other people desperately, desperately need what we have.
1: Yeah, he, Wyndham over a period of five years, lost his speech, lost his ability to hunt and fish and run and walk. He couldn't balance, he couldn't eat. I mean, it was all, and he was joyful, genuinely joyful to the very end. What did he have to look forward to? I mean, and yet he did. He had, he had eternity to look forward to, and he went out exactly the way I want to go out. And uh, so I think that's, what's all about.
0: Kevin and Melissa, thank you so much for your time and all the best to you in Boston. Going to be praying for your work there.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for joining the Rob Skinner podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please hit the subscribe button, And let your friends know about it and how to find it. Because my goal is to inspire you to make this life count, live a no regrets life, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Have a great day and make this life count.